Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 12, verses 37 to 43. Even though Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. It was five years, four months, and 16 days ago that my wife Sarah went into labor with our youngest son, Judah. And so as she went into labor, it was an early Wednesday morning. We made our way over to what was then Covenant Hospital. And shortly after we arrived, Judah arrived. It was a pretty short labor. And kind of as you would expect, uh, if you've ever been in that situation, over the next couple days, family and friends came to visit us in the hospital, and I, I don't quite remember exactly who came, but one thing has stuck in my mind for the last five years, and that's when Paul and Jenny Sabino came to visit us. If, if you've just joined us in the last year or two, you might not know the Sabinos, but uh, Paul was one of the founding pastors of Candeo. Now he's down in Gainesville, uh, the lead pastor at our church plant in Gainesville. He'll actually be here in July, so if you want to see Paul, make sure you're here in July. But uh, Anyways, so Paul came in and like, like a good pastor, you know, he's holding Judah and he's like, hey, can, can I pray for you guys? And of course, who's gonna say no to that, right? So we're like, yeah, go, yeah, that'd be awesome, Paul. Thanks. And uh, so he starts praying and he prays like one of the most incredible prayers I've heard ever, like ever. I mean, I've heard prayers for the nations, you know, no. Nothing compared to this prayer that Paul prayed for Judah. It was kind of this like blending of, imagine Moses coming down from the mountain, okay? And then pair that with Rafiki on Pride Rock, like with Simba, you know? The ceiling might as well have opened and like a ray of sunlight just come down on Judah. It was crazy because, you know, and Paul's kind of intense anyway, if you know Paul. But he's praying that Judah would be like a man of valor. I mean, he's using these words, right? Like man of valor, that he would, you know, take God's glory to the nations, that he'd silence, you know, the mouths of adversaries. Like he's just going. And at some point during the prayer, I kind of look up and I catch eyes with Jenny and we're both like, what is going on? And so Paul gets done and Jenny was like, Paul, I don't think I've ever heard you pray for our kids like that, <laughs> let alone, you know, which isn't true, of course. It was just that kind of intense. It was one of those prayers that, that you remember that you're like, hey, you form a line, you know, like a conga line. Hey, can you pray for me? Like, pray that over me, Paul. You know, it was one of those just powerful, memorable prayers. As we get to this point in the book of John, 
I think it might be helpful for us to remember another prayer that was prayed over an infant. And that prayer was the prayer that Simeon prayed over Jesus when Jesus was about a month old. It's a little bit different than Paul's prayer for Judah, but what we see in Luke chapter two is that Simeon sees Jesus and his parents coming into the temple and here's what Simeon prays over Jesus. Luke 2, 34 through 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. A very different prayer. Try praying that over your nephew. What's Simeon saying? He's saying that Mary, your son will be hated and opposed. And not only that, but he will also cause many other people to be hated and opposed. Maybe, maybe don't pray that over your nephew, right? But what we've seen over the last 28 weeks as we've walked through the book of John has been this prayer being fulfilled. That as Jesus has interacted with a variety of people, that he has become a pretty polarizing figure. That for some, when they interact with Jesus, they, they hear him, they love him, they receive him and believe in him. And for others, when they interact with Jesus, they hear him and they hate him and they totally reject him. Now, don't forget the reason why John wrote the book of John was what he says in chapter 20. He said, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John is saying all these things about what Jesus said and what he did, so that you may believe. That's why Jesus walked the way that he did, talked the way that he did, did the things that he did, was so that people would believe. But here in verse 37 of chapter 12, John writes, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. He did all these things so they would believe, but even though he did all these things, they would not believe in him. And so the question this morning, that I think John is answering for us in some way in this text, is why this unbelief? Why? Why, if the purpose of everything Jesus was doing and everything John wrote was so that people would believe, why is it the case that still so many people didn't believe? And, and not only back then, but now, why is it the case that even today, there are many who will hear about Jesus, read what he did, hear what he did, and still not believe? This might hit home, this might hit close to home for some of you. Why in the world would my family that I care so much about, that I want so badly to come to faith in Jesus, that no matter what I say, that no matter how long I pray, it seems as though they just, they just don't believe. Maybe it's a spouse or a child, friends and coworkers and neighbors that just won't believe in Jesus. Why unbelief? What we, what we see in our text this morning are three reasons for unbelief. Three reasons for unbelief. And the first reason that John gives 
for this kind of unbelief we see in verses 38 through 40. Check this out. Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe. Because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. The first reason that people are unable to believe is because God has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. God has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. Now, to be clear, this is not God turning people away who want to believe in him. This is not God standing there and, and just a flood of people going like, I wanna believe, I wanna believe, and God saying, sorry, we're closed, no soup for you. Like. This is not God turning away people who want to believe in Jesus. No, this is what many theologians call a judicial hardening, which means that when God hardens the hearts of unbelievers, he isn't causing their unbelief, but he is giving them over to their unbelief. There's a big difference. God doesn't cause unbelief. But when God hardens someone's heart, what he's doing is he is giving them over to the unbelief that is already true of who they are. It's like solidifying people in their unbelief. Think of, think of like galvanizing steel or tempering glass. Steel and glass are already hard, right? Like you don't wanna get hit over the head with either of those. I don't care if it's not galvanized or tempered. You don't wanna get hit with it. But what you do in galvanizing and tempering is you put that through a process that solidifies those two things and makes them even more secure in their present state of hardness. This is what God does when he hardens the heart of unbelievers. You see, the truth is that the only way that anyone wants to believe is because God has moved in their heart to give them the desire to believe. See, often we think that, we, we, we think that we're born neutral. Like that, well, I'm, just, I'm born a blank slate, and then based on my upbringing, my environment, my influences, all that stuff, that will be what determines whether I believe or don't believe in God. We're, we're in contrast, what the Bible says is that we are born in our sin which means that we are born enemies of God. And not only enemies of God, but we are born spiritually dead. There was a professor who stood up in front of his class and said, uh, what, what can a dead person do? After a moment of silence, one lone voice from the back yelled out, stink. Dead people can stink. That's all they can do. See, dead people can't respond to anything unless something supernatural outside of themselves causes them to have the very life that is necessary to respond. This is, this is what Jesus said back in John chapter six, maybe you'll remember in verse 44, when he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me first takes the initiative to draw them to me. Apart from God's supernatural work, nobody naturally wants God. 
which means that nobody disbelieves against their will, but rather according to it. Nobody disbelieves against their will. God doesn't cause unbelief. But there are times when God will solidify people in their unbelief because we don't naturally want God. And there will be times when God will give us over to what we want. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, verses 22 through 25, when he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Verse 24, check this out. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. The judicial hardening of an unbeliever's heart is God giving people over to their desires, which means that persistence in unbelief puts you in danger of being given over to your unbelief. This is, you might remember a few weeks ago, I said, it's incredibly dangerous if, if, you, if you aren't a believer in Christ, it's incredibly dangerous for you to continue to come to church. And here's why. I don't mean physically dangerous. It's spiritually dangerous because week after week after week, as you hear the truth of the gospel, as you are presented with who Jesus is and what he has done and are called to respond to Christ, and as you continue to reject that call and remain in unbelief, it is incredibly dangerous because God may decide to just give you over to that unbelief. This is why it is so incredibly important for you to not go, I'll get to Jesus later. Like, I just wanna get, I just wanna have my college experience and then, and then maybe I'll deal with Jesus or maybe I'll get my career going or, you know, get married or maybe I'll have kids or whatever it is. Like, you, to put Jesus off is to put yourself in danger of being given over to your unbelief as though you could control ultimately whether you desire God or not. God is the one who draws people for belief. And there are times when God gives people over to their unbelief. It's a dangerous thing to persist in your unbelief lest God give you over to your own desires. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Be done. If you persist in your unbelief and not wanting God, he may eventually give you exactly what you want. Because how cruel would it be for God to force people to live an eternity with the very one they didn't want in this life. How cruel would that be? You spend your whole life saying, God, I don't want you. And then for him to go, okay, fine. Then don't have me for eternity. Wouldn't it be cruel for him to do otherwise? To force you to live with the one you rejected your whole life. Don't persist in unbelief. Now, what this also means, 
because that's kind of a downer, right? Like, no, we don't, we don't write worship songs about that. So, but what this also means, it means something incredibly encouraging in that we rest in a God who oversees the belief of all people. We rest in a God who oversees the belief of all people that because belief is initiated by God, that means that belief is not left to chance, but is a result of God working in the hearts of people. What does this mean? Since God oversees all belief, this means that our greatest evangelistic strategy is not our knowledge. It's not how much you know about the Bible. It's not how much you know about Jesus. It's not your ability to, to be incredibly persuasive and convincing. It's not, it's not in your tactics. It's not like, well, I can't share the gospel because I don't really know that much, right? It's like, it, or I can't share the gospel because I'm not, I'm not really that persuasive or I haven't been a believer that long or I don't really know anything. Like our assurance in sharing the gospel is not in our ability or our tactics. Our greatest evangelistic method because God oversees all belief is prayer, that as we open our mouths and boldly and lovingly share the truth of the gospel, that we also know that it's God and God alone that can cause someone to respond in faith. So as we are faithful, we rest in, in the obedience of sharing, not in the results of faith, because God oversees all belief. He's the only one who can raise the dead to life. He's the only one who can open blind eyes. He's the only one that can soften hard hearts. And so our job in sharing the gospel with others is not to assess the hardness of somebody's heart. It's not to, it's not to somehow determine whether God has given, over, given them over to the hardness of their heart. We can't know that. No, our job is to not assess the hardness of their heart, but is to be faithful in sharing the gospel with them, and then to trust God to do what only God can do and pray that he would. So some don't believe because God has hardened their hearts. What's another reason that some people don't believe? Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. The second reason that some people don't believe is because they don't see what Isaiah saw. They don't see what Isaiah saw. Now, if you'll notice, John is quoting directly from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter six. Now, it's important to remember that when you see Old Testament passages being quoted in the New Testament, uh, remember that as those passages are quoted, often, often though we only see like one verse, when the people hearing this would have heard it, they would have heard the one verse and thought of the entire passage. So sometimes one verse is referenced assuming that the listeners actually know the context of that verse. And so when we look at Isaiah chapter 53, it's, the, the order is important. He talks about Isaiah 53 and then Isaiah 6. When we look at Isaiah 52 and 53, what Isaiah is prophesying about is that the suffering is, is that the servant of the Lord who would come to rescue Israel would not, be, would not come to rule but to suffer. That this servant of the Lord who God would send 
would not come to rule victoriously, would not come to be like, like a military might, but would actually come to suffer. And that this suffering servant would actually be pretty unspectacular and unattractive. And, and he says that as, as much in Isaiah 53, verse two, where Isaiah says he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. This is very different than what they expected. But then he jumps to Isaiah chapter six. When you look at Isaiah Isaiah chapter six, what Isaiah is recounting is his vision of the throne room of God and the glory of the Lord as he sees God in his throne high and exalted, that as his glory fills the place that with smoke and while the foundations of the heaven would shake with one seraphim calling to another. So two angels talking to each other in Isaiah six, shake the foundations of heaven. There are myriads and myriads of angels, but just two of them shake the whole place. Like Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord as these angels call back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What Isaiah saw was the glory of the Lord. And this is why he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He feared death because his eyes had seen the glory of God. And what was the glory that Isaiah saw? It was the glory of God in the Son. How do I know that? Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Who is him? Jesus Christ. They couldn't believe because they didn't see what Isaiah saw. What John is saying as he, as he sets Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 right next to each other is he's saying that this suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is also this glorious God in Isaiah chapter 6. And they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it because the Messiah they expected wasn't the Messiah they got. Jordan talked about this two weeks ago in the triumphal entry where the Messiah that they expected was this triumphant king who was gonna come into the city and overthrow the Roman empire and reestablish Israel back to its rightful place in political and religious history, but that's not what they got. And because Jesus wasn't what they expected, he wasn't who they wanted. It's kind of like when the waiter gets the tables kind of mixed up and he brings someone else's food to your table and you're like, what do you do? You send it back. That's not what I ordered. It's not what I expected. Send it back. It's not mine. Your expectation isn't what you got, so you send it back. You see, some people don't see Jesus as glorious because he doesn't meet your expectations. Isn't it true that many of us, if we're really honest, many of us want a God of our own making. We want a God that doesn't offend us. We want a God that meets our expectations, that plays by our rules, that affirms what we want to affirm. We want a God that conveniently holds the same view that I hold on everything. 
And it's this kind of wanting a God in our own image that, that makes you go like, well, my God would never do that. My God would never say that. My God would never mean that. My God would never think that. And so when you get a Jesus who challenges and even offends the way that you think and the way that you want to live, send him back. That's not what I ordered. That's not the Jesus I ordered. You see, if Jesus never challenges you, then it's very likely that you've turned him into someone who looks suspiciously similar to you. It's very likely that you have turned him into a God of your own making. And Jesus Christ, the glory of God and a suffering servant wasn't who they expected and therefore wasn't who they wanted. And so they didn't believe because they didn't see what Isaiah saw. And then finally, what's the third reason for unbelief? that we see in this passage, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. The third reason for unbelief is loving human praise more than praise from God. Now, I don't know if the faith of these people was authentic. I don't know. We, we see in some passages where there is a kind of faith that even Jesus doesn't believe. We saw this back in John chapter 2, verse 23, when he says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. Which... What he's saying is, is that a, a faith based on signs and miracles is at best a weak faith. And so Jesus didn't entrust himself to that kind of faith because he knew all of them. And so it was a, it was a kind of faith that G, even Jesus was kind of skeptical of. And so uh, we don't quite know with these, you know, religious rulers who are now believers, like if this faith was authentic, because we also see a few chapters later in John chapter five, verse 44, Jesus says, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? How can you believe when you're so often and relentlessly chasing the praise of other people and not the praise of God? You see, they loved human praise more than the praise of God, and so they kept their mouths shut. And the reason they kept their mouths shut was because they didn't want to be banned from the synagogue. Now, maybe you'll remember from John chapter nine, being banned from the synagogue would have been a really big deal because the synagogue was like the central place of the religious and social life of, of the, the Jewish people. So it wasn't like, like, well, you just can't go to church on Sundays. It was like, no, you can't like associate with your community. Like you get banned from the synagogue and your standing in society takes an absolute nosedive. 
Your reputation is like in the garbage. Your, your influence, maybe the influence that you had or the influence that you wanted, you get banned from the synagogue, no influence. Like your, your influence takes a massive, massive hit. So they kept their mouths shut because they love the praise of people more than the praise of God. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, a private relationship means very little without a public commitment. A private relationship means very little without a public commitment. I have known some who have gone on first dates 30 minutes out of town. And because they're like, I'm not quite sure if I wanna be seen in public with them yet. (laughs) Which is like, okay, that's fine, I don't know. But try that on your wife. Try that on your girlfriend. Like adore her at home and ignore her in public. Try that out. See how that goes. Like adore her at home and then go, we need to go to Target. How about we drive separate? I'll leave my ring in the car. I'm actually gonna run in ahead of you so we, we don't, we're not walking together. I'll just meet you back at home. My guess is, guys, that wouldn't go very well. Because a private relationship means very little without a public commitment. Do you love the praise that comes from people more than the praise that comes from God? What's interesting in this text is this is so different than John chapter nine. If you remember the blind man who was healed and pretty much the whole chapter was this interrogation, you know, from the Pharisees toward this blind man, asking him what happened. And he continues to basically identify with Christ, right? And you have to wonder, it's like, man, it, it seems somewhat easy. I mean, he even got kind of sassy at times where it's like, was it, he was blind. And so he was already low in society. So really to identify with Christ, man, he didn't really have a whole lot left to lose, But contrast that with these religious rulers. And isn't it interesting that it's often true that the higher that you go up in your workplace, the harder it seems to publicly identify with Christ. That the more that your influence grows, your job, in your neighborhood, amongst your friends, that the greater your position, the higher your status, the more tempting it is to keep your mouth shut. And for your faith in Christ to become kind of like a behind closed door faith. Jesus, I'll I'll adore you in private. But in public... Let's drive separate. Now, I I don't know whether their faith was genuine, but the thing for us to consider this morning 
is what keeps you from publicly identifying with Jesus? What keeps you from opening your mouth, from identifying with Christ? I mean, it, it is possible that the reason why it might even be so hard for you to even think of reading your Bible at lunch is that somebody might see you reading your Bible. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying, like, publicly identifying with Christ in any way, what keeps you from doing that? I think John Calvin said it well when he said, can anything be more foolish or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applause of men to the judgment of God? So many of us are chasing the golf claps of human praise. And we're preferring that over the thunderous applause of heaven, like that we would trade the applause and the glory and the, and the praise from God as we stand with him and we would trade all that for. Brothers and sisters, stop trying to impress the wrong people. Stop trying to impress the wrong people. Stop chasing the golf claps of human praise. The reality is, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you ought to feel a bit different in this world. This is, this is what we do as parents, right? Like our children come home from school and they go like, oh, I just feel so different. And I go, yeah, get used to it. Now I'm not trying to raise someone who's unnecessarily weird, okay? Like we don't want that, but there is a reality that if I'm going to raise a Christian child, they need to get used to not fitting in. We will not fit in as we follow Christ. So why this unbelief? For some, it was because God had hardened their hearts. For others, it was because they didn't see what Isaiah saw. And then for others, it was because they loved human praise more than the praise that comes from God. Is your heart soft to the words that you're hearing this morning? Are you beginning to see the glory of Christ, which is which is? blindingly greater than your unimpressive expectations? And do you want the praise of God more than the praise of people? Friend, don't remain in unbelief. Believe in Jesus. Follow Jesus. Love Jesus. Stand with Jesus, though many will despise you for it. Because what we saw last week is true. That whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we praise your holy name this morning. Lord, would you soften our hearts to your word? Oh God, for those who have yet to believe, I, I beg 
that you would relent in your judgment of hardening their heart, Lord, that you would soften their heart to respond in faith, to believe in Jesus for the salvation of their souls. Oh God, would we see what Isaiah saw? Your glory in your suffering servant. Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you help us to stop chasing the fickle praise of other people and to delight in the praise that comes from you. Though we may stand alone, would it be our joy to stand with you? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.